middle of a series, uh, teaching series through uh, the Apostle Paul's letter in the New Testament, letter to the Ephesians, Christians in the ancient city of Ephesus. So if you have a Bible with you, now's a great time to open it up. Tonight we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, so just a few verses. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. I'm going to read the text for us, and um, it's also, yeah, it's already up here on the screen, so you can follow along there or in your own Bible, and uh, then we'll pray and dive in. All right, Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 19. Here we go. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Please pray with me. Let's ask God to help us. Father, we come now before you again uh, after another week, another week of life where we have seen our need of you, whether we recognize it or not, Father, because we are dependent creatures and we're fallen creatures. We're people that are broken on the inside, people that can't figure things out on our own, people that sin against those who are closest to us and believe lies each and every day. And Father, tonight we come before you under the authority of your word and ask that you would help us, that you would again reorient our minds and our hearts to believe the gospel and to live according to it. We ask, Father, that you would send your spirit now and that you would work as you've promised to do through the word so that no matter where we're coming from tonight, emotionally or spiritually or psychologically, no matter our relationship status with you, Father, we ask that you would work grace in our hearts so that leaving this place, we would be new people, refreshed people, people who believe that what Jesus has said about himself is true and that what Jesus has done for us in his death and resurrection is meaningful for us and, in fact, is the thing that changes everything about our lives and about this creation. Father, we need your spirit to help if that's going to take place. And so be with me, be with all of us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I've started this church, as we started it together, and I go around, one of the big things I try to do is just talk to people, connect with people, and tell them about what we're doing at Christ Church. One of the first questions I always, well, the first question I get is, how old are you again? But after I tell them I'm older than I look, the next question almost always that I get is, maybe you can guess, but I won't make you. Uh, the next question I get is, well, what, where, where's your building? Right? Where do you meet? And you know, that's a fair question. It's a question that people obviously need to know if they're going to come check us out. Uh, it's a good question in a lot of web levels, but sometimes I think that question uh, can speak to sort of a deeper cultural misunderstanding, a deeper Christian misunderstanding of what the church is. Um, even the phrase, I'm going to church, to some degree speaks to a misunderstanding. You see, the church, the church is not primarily a place. The church is not primarily a building. The church is a people. You do not go to church. You are the church. And sometimes you as the church gather in certain places to worship and to do other things. Uh, that's a very, very important concept. And in fact, really, I think that's what the whole letter of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians is about. It's about who the church is and what the church is called to do in light of what Jesus has done for her. And so tonight, 
what we want to look at in a really uh, sort of important text is that idea of who is the church? What is the church all about? What does it mean to be the church? We've been studying this letter uh, of Paul to the Ephesians, and we've seen that really it's an ancient letter, and yet it's a letter that's relevant, a letter that is meaningful for us today, because more and more in our culture, we're a minority we're in a minority position as Christians, and we're struggling to figure out what it looks like to live in light of the gospel in the culture that's increasingly opposed to the Christian faith and to Jesus. That was exactly the situation that the Ephesians were in when Paul wrote them this letter. Um, they were a vast minority. They were a new church, just like we're a new church, and they were trying to figure things out. They were trying to understand how they lived life on a practical day-to-day -day basis in light of what Jesus had done for them. They were trying to figure out some theological issues that were fundamental to their faith. And Paul wrote this letter to help them. Paul wrote this letter under the guidance of God's Spirit to help us as well. We saw last week that because the gospel is true, if you'll remember what we looked at last week, because the gospel is true, people that before they became Christians really couldn't stand each other. People that before they became Christians had nothing to do with each other and understood nothing about each other, now, because of their mutual faith in Jesus and their connection to one another in Jesus, are friends. The wall of hostility we saw has been broken down so that Jews and Gentiles can be friends again, so that both God and man are friends and man and man are friends together through faith in Jesus. Tonight, Paul continues on that same line of thinking, on the same theological trajectory, so to speak. And he's speaking tonight in these few verses about the church. And I think that these few verses, they're very compact, but they contain some of the most important teaching in the whole Bible on who the church is. And uh, really the title of the whole series of Ephesians is Who is the Church? And in this text, I think we find Paul giving us an answer. He's answering the question for us, how do we define ourselves? How do we define ourselves as a church? And he answers it beautifully. He doesn't use theological jargon. It's not like reading a systematic theology. He uses metaphors. He uses analogies. And in fact, there's, there's three important, precious metaphors that Paul uses to illustrate for us tonight who the church is. And so that's what we're going to look at together, those three points. Paul tells us that you are, as the church, you are first, citizens. Second, as the church, you are family members. And third, you're a building. Okay? Citizens, family members, a building. You ready? Okay, good. I see your heads nodding in the right direction, so we will continue. But even if your heads were nodding this way, we would still continue. Um, okay, so first, Paul tells us, verse 19, you are citizens. Look at what he says there, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but, but, you are fellow citizens with the saints. So right there in the first half of that verse, Paul is summarizing everything he said so far in chapter 2. He said in various ways that you were once, before you knew Jesus, in a certain condition, and now after faith in Jesus, you are in a new condition. You're a new humanity. You've received reconciliation with God. You've received a new lease on life. Things are different for you. You formerly were strangers and aliens. Now you are citizens. Those words, strangers and aliens, those words are almost synonymous, and they refer to, they refer to being a, a cultural and linguistic outsider. Um, they refer to the idea of a person who finds himself or herself in a place where they are a foreigner. 
and where they don't know the language and they feel completely alone. Um, the recent movie Argo, how many of you saw Argo? It's a really good movie. It won Best Picture, I think, in 2011, 2012. It illustrates this point well. Ben Affleck is in the movie, and it's about um, the Iranian, I think it's the Iranian hostage crisis, where it's in 1979, and the American embassy is bombarded by militant Iranians, and a few people escape the embassy and hide out in the home of the Canadian ambassador. And Ben Affleck and a number of other people who are FBI agents come over to Tehran to rescue them under the guise of filming a movie called Argo. It's a really cool movie. But some of the early scenes where these people who are hiding in the Canadian ambassador's house in the middle of a very, um, very hot city in Tehran, um, some of those scenes are chilling because it depicts very well for us what it must have felt like for them as complete cultural outsiders as people who, by and large, didn't know the language, who didn't know the customs, who didn't know the people, and were faced with severe hostility, to say the least, when they're dealing with the cultural situation they found themselves in. It was a messy situation. It was a difficult situation. It was a bleak situation. It's exactly what Paul's saying. Our situation is, whether we're religious or irreligious, whether we're Jewish or Gentile, before we met Jesus. But now, through faith, he says, in Jesus, as he's offered himself to us in the gospel, we no longer have that sort of outsider status, right? We're no longer strangers or aliens. We are now, he says, fellow citizens with the saints. Okay, so when we trust Jesus and enter into his community, the church, we become, Jesus is telling us here through the inspiration of the Spirit, we become citizens of a new nation. We become a part of a new city. Now, there's a number of points that we could take from that. Let me just make two for you really quick as we think about our status, our position as citizens in God's kingdom. First thing we need to take away, I think, is that um, the church transcends earthly citizenships and boundaries. Uh, far too often in the history of the church, the church too closely associates itself and its mission with the mission and status of some other earthly nation. That's happened all through history, and that still happens today. This text is teaching us that the church is for people from every tribe and tongue and nation. The dividing wall of hostility has been broken down, and their new citizenship, the new place they find themselves in, the new city that they are a part of, transcends their loyalty to their former nations, to their former places of re residence. So you are not first an American or a Mexican or a Japanese person, or a Korean, if you're a believer. Those things are important, and our loyalty to our countries are very good, but primarily and fundamentally, you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, which is exactly what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, that our citizenship is fundamentally and top priority in heaven. First thing to take away about the idea of us being citizens. But I think a more important point of application to take home from the idea that we're citizens is this, the fact the fact that you and I are citizens in God's kingdom, that's part of what it means to be the church, implies that we have both mutual privileges with one another and a mutual responsibility to one another. Let me put it this way. Um, you are not only responsible for your own spiritual health. If you're a Christian, look around the room. The people that you see here, 
you are to some degree responsible for the spiritual health of those in whom you are connected in the local church because you're a citizen of a kingdom that's bigger than just your relationship with God. Your relationship with God is important, but just like any other kingdom, you have other social duties. You have duties to the society of which you're a part. Now, in our world, that means we pay taxes. It means we care for our neighbor. It means we try to be good citizens. In the world of the kingdom, it means that we're responsible to some degree for the spiritual growth, for the spiritual nourishment, for the spiritual health of our brothers and sisters that we sit next to and that we serve next to. What might that look like for us? Well, here's one thing it looks like. Here's one thing it means to be a citizen. You are not in the church. If you just show up to some church, Christ Church or some other church, maybe three out of four Sundays, and think of your church experience solely in terms of I'm coming to get fed and then I'm going home and not worrying about it till next Sunday. Listen, you are not going to grow in Christ if that is the main approach that you have towards Jesus' church. Please don't misunderstand me when I say what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Sundays are not enough. And I say that as a preacher who wants people to listen to me preach on Sundays. But, but Sundays are not enough. You must be involved in one another's lives. You need, to, you need to, by God's grace, bear not just your own responsibility for your spiritual growth, but in community the responsibility that you have towards one another because you're citizens. It's part of what it means the church. Second, first your citizens, second your family members. So Paul immediately transitions to this second metaphor in the second part of verse 19. So look with me. You're no longer strangers and aliens, fellow, but fellow citizens with the saints, and quick metaphor change, very common in Paul, members of the household of God. Now I hope you can see that there's, a, there's an increased inti intimacy and there's an increased intensity in the metaphor that Paul uses here, right? So now he's saying that you're not just citizens in a kingdom where God is king, but you're also family members in a home where God is father. Okay? When you think about that, think, what is a home? A home is not just a physical dwelling in which, that you occupy most of your time. A home in the Bible and in our own language today is it's, it's a place where you seek shelter and, and refuge. It's a place of safety. It's a place where um, you can be yourself. It's a place where there's authenticity and honesty and where you can watch the Super Bowl in your pajamas. It's a place where you sometimes go out to check the mail and your wife says, you're not leaving the house wearing that, right? That's what home is. Home is a place where we're comfortable. Home is the place where we're ourselves. Home is the place where we, where we are in it should be this way, where we are, we are the, real, the real us. And Paul's saying here that in Jesus, you find your true spiritual home. He's saying, he's saying that before you meet Jesus, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, no matter where you're from, you're, to a certain degree, spiritually homeless. You know, Psalm 90 says that God has been our dwelling place, our home, through all generations. And that's very evident here as well. When you come to faith in the Lord Jesus, you find a home, a home in God, and a home with one another. You know, I remember when I was a freshman at Baylor, and uh, after my first semester, or in my first semester, you know, I, I stayed 
at school on campus for eight, 10 weeks, something like that. And then, then I decided to go home for a weekend. And it was going to be my first trip home after I had gone away to college. And, you know, I hadn't had a bad experience. I was doing fine. Everything was going well. I was happy. But I pulled into Amarillo, Texas on I-40, driving west, and exited Bell Street and turned left. And then I turned right onto Jamison Road, the, house, the, the street that I grew up in, and I drove one block, and I got onto the second block. And my house, the fourth house on the left, was right there. And it was late fall. And I looked, and I parked, and my dog came running out, his tongue wagging to greet me, happy, excited. And my mom came out on the front the front lawn, and, and I got out of the car, and, and uh, I embraced my mom. And uh, things have not been terrible. I hadn't had a bad time. But as soon as I hugged my mom, I just started crying because I knew I was home. I wanted my mom's food. <laughs> I was sick of dorm food. I, I wanted to sleep in my bed. I wanted to pet my dog. I wanted to see my brothers. So you know that I've been gone for a while. <laughs> um, I, I was home. I, I missed my mom. And, and I, I, I wasn't like depressed or anything, but my mom started thinking, are you, are you okay? Yeah, because I just started crying. As soon as I hugged her right there in the front yard, listen, that is what the church is to be for you. Is your church, church experience like that? Is church a place where you can be yourself? Is church a place where people around you know the real you? Where they know really what you're facing, what you're dealing with, the struggles you have? Where they know your sin propensities and your grace propensities? Or is church, more often than not, a place where you put up a facade, where you wear masks, where you have a false front and no one really knows you? If the latter is the case more than the former, then I would encourage you to look to Jesus as he offers himself to you in the gospel and to think again about what it might be to truly be a part of the church. That's a lot easier for me to stand up here and say that than for us to live that way. For us to make the church a home, for us to really be a, a, a part of God's household with him as our father and us as brothers and sisters requires a certain amount of relational risk. You know, to have someone really know you it requires me to have the courage to, to tell them something that's going to make me vulnerable to some degree. And it requires me also trusting this person enough, under God's grace, under the canopy of his mercy, that they're not going to judge me and reject me. Marianne and I talk about it in these terms sometimes. We have to, in that moment, um, tr we have to both believe the gospel and believe that the other person is believing the gospel. And, and when that takes place, though, beautiful things begin to start happening. You, you begin to see that you're not all alone. That, that other people in your family really do face the same things that you face. And God oftentimes puts people in your life to help you in the particular situation in which you find yourselves at this time in your life. That's what it means to be a part of the family. That's what Paul's saying here when he says the church is it's not just a citizenship in the kingdom, but it's a family with God as the Father. Another thing that I can't get away from, and this is a shameless plug really for Christchurch, is that uh, if you want to be able to say with integrity that your church is like a home, your church imitates Ephesians 2, 19, and 20, then, then, then you need to be involved in each other's lives. Join one of our small groups. We're starting them just in a couple of weeks. That's a great opportunity, if I can be so bold as to say, 
It's a great opportunity for you to do exactly what Paul's talking about here, for you to live life in a church as if it is a part of your family, as if you are home. It's an opportunity for you to be in relationship with one another more than just the hour and a half that we enjoy with one another tonight and the times we might connect during the week for lunch or something like that. It's a time to be involved in one another's life. I would encourage you to get involved. Paul tells us that the church is a citizenship. You are citizens. He tells us that it's a family. You are family members. And then thirdly, beginning in verse 20, Paul tells us that you are a building. You are a building. Okay? This is the third metaphor to illustrate who the church is. And it's the most intense image of all. Okay? So first we saw that, that we're a part of the kingdom which God rules. Okay? And then we saw that we're a part of a family in which God is the Father. And now Paul tells us that we're actually a part of the building that God himself indwells. Uh, God is over us as a king. God is with us as a father. And God is in us as we are the building which he lives in. So the intensity and the intimacy of the metaphors only increase as, this, as the text goes along <coughs> And Paul says some very, very fundamental and important things about the church as a building. Each of these verses could be a whole sermon, but let me just briefly explain some of this to you. When he says in verse 20 that we are the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, he's saying there that we are each stones in the building that is founded upon the ministry of the apostles. The apostles are the men who saw the resurrected Jesus and wrote most of the New Testament. So Paul, the 12 disciples, and maybe a couple of other guys. And the prophets here are not referring to Old Testament prophets, most likely, like Isaiah. They're referring to New Testament prophets, to people who received revelations from God and spoke truly for the building up of the church. So when the church was just getting rolling in the first century, the apostles and the prophets basically provided for us God's will through what we now see in the Bible. They wrote this thing for us. They, they taught this thing to us. They passed around these letters that eventually became the New Testament. So when Paul says that the church is a building is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, he's saying that the foundation of the church, the place where the church derives its integrity and its life and its vitality is in the scriptures, is in God's revelation of himself through the apostles and the prophets. It's not in you. It's not in some other guy who claims to be the head. It's in the apostles and in the prophets. So that's the first important thing to get about God's building. The second thing to get, real quickly, verse 21, is that not only is this building of which we are part founded on the apostles and the prophets, but it's also more than a building. Look at 21. The whole structure being joined together grows into a what? Holy temple. A holy temple in the Lord. So Paul's saying here that the church, the building of which we are a part, founded on the apostles and prophets, is the new temple. What does that mean? Well, if you remember the Old Testament, very end of Exodus, when the tabernacle was built, or in 2 Kings, when Solomon finishes the temple, what happens? The glory of God comes rushing down. It descends on that place. The temple is the place where God lives. Uh, for an ancient Jew, the temple was seen as the place, the place where heaven and earth meet. <coughs> it's the place where God dwells. And what Paul's saying here is very important, and this would have blown the socks or the sandals off of a first century Jew. 
There's no longer any need, Paul's saying, for a physical structure for God to occupy. You yourselves are the building that God dwells in. You are the temple. You are the place, the people in which God resides. Now notice, notice by way of application, don't miss this. It's very clear here that Paul is not concerned to think about God inhabiting you merely as an individual. Paul is concerned here with the idea of God inhabiting you as you're connected with others in the church. Once again, the point is, is I hope, fundamental and clear. God is interested in our communal, corporate growth together. What does that mean? It means, listen, it means that the Christian life is fundamentally and unalterably a communal life. Um, there are no such things in the New Testament as Lone Ranger Christians. No Christian is an island. Um, the whole idea that you can abandon God's people and just work on your own personal relationship with God is foreign. It's foreign to the Bible. Um, the degree to which you are going to grow in your relationship with God largely depends on the degree to which you are growing in community with one another. The degree to which you are going to grow in your relationship with God largely depends on the degree to which you are growing in community with one another. John Calvin said that you cannot have God as your father without having the church as your mother. And what he meant by that is that it's impossible to be a growing Christian and have nothing to do with the church. It's impossible. And that's what Paul's saying here. To be a believer in Jesus implies that you are a part of this building that God indwells. God doesn't indwell individual stones only. God indwells individual stones as they are a part of the building. As they are a part of the temple. God does not just want to get involved with you on an individual level, although he does do that. God primarily wants to be involved with you as an individual as you are connected with other individuals in community. How does that image, how do these metaphors square, how do they compare with, with the way you're approaching church now? Um, can you square the intensity of these images with the way you live in the church? You know, the, the image of the building especially speaks of how deep our relationships with each other should be. God, God inhabits us by the Spirit as we are connected together. And I, I thought here of an illustration that you're probably going to hear me use a lot. In fact, I talk about this guy a lot. C.S. Lewis has a, he has a beautiful illustration in his book called The Four Loves, where he talks about his friendship with two other men. Uh, he called them, C.S. Lewis is known as Jack, and he called these guys Ronald and Charles, but their real names are J.R.R. Tolkien and Charles Williams. So Jack, Ronald, and Charles were three really good buddies. They got together over beers in 20th century English pubs and talked about really old books that we wouldn't even be able to read today because they're in really old Nordic weird English. And uh, suddenly, and unfortunately, Charles, their good buddy, died. He died very young, and uh, they were mourning and grieving, Jack and Ronald, and uh, they got back together and began to spend time together, and they, they assumed at the outset that, you know, they would just, they would have the same level of friendship, and they would just sort of pour more into each other, 
now that Charles was gone. Jack and Ronald would continue on. But as they went on in their friendship, they found that they were, they were less close now that Charles was gone. And C.S. Lewis actually writes about this in The Four Loves. He says things like this. The reason that they were, weren't as good of friends as they were when Charles was there was that there was, a sign of, there was a side of Ronald that Charles and Charles alone brought out. And now it was lost. Lewis says, I am not enough by myself to draw this whole person forth. Now listen, that is true of you in your relationship with God and others. You cannot, you are not enough in yourself to draw God forth more fully when you're not also surrounded by others seeking the same thing at the same time. And, and you are not enough just with God to grow. You need others to draw your own self forth more fully. You see, community brings out parts of you and parts of others that couldn't be brought out otherwise. And community brings out parts of God that you would never grasp all alone. And that's because you're designed as Christians to be a part of a building. You're not just a stone lying somewhere along I-35. You're a part of a temple. Now, as we wrap up, here's the obvious question. <laughs> How can that show up in my life? You know, because I think we all want that. We all want community. We want that sort of depth and relationship, but we don't have it very often. We, we sort of feel like we're grasping at straws when we seek that sort of intimacy and vibrancy relationally in the community. And the reason is because you're sinful, and I'm sinful, and we're lazy, and we're tired, and we're busy, and we're selfish. And so when we leave a sermon like this and head out this door and think, man, I've really got to work harder on being a building, we're going to miss the whole point. When we leave this door and think, I'm a part of a family, let's pull up my bootstraps, right? Here we go. Let's be a better family. When we leave this building and think, I've got to do my citizen duty and love other people better, exertion of willpower, right? It's not going to work because your will's not strong enough. So how does this sort of community happen? Look at verse 20. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. <coughs> the whole edifice of our community life is built solely upon Jesus. And only when you realize, recognize, admit, believe that you at every moment are dependent upon Jesus as cornerstone where you begin to see the sort of vibrancy and community in your life that Paul's writing about here. What does that mean? It means that, that when you get, listen, when you get that Jesus, who had the most perfect community with God that we could ever imagine, was taken outside of the city walls, and although he was a citizen in God's kingdom, he was the prince of God's kingdom. He was he was, as it were, expatriated. His citizenship was revoked as he was taken outside the walls of Jerusalem and killed by his father on a cross. Jesus lost his citizenship so that you can have it. When you see that, that Jesus, who is the eternal son of God, who's always had the relationship with father-son, with God the Father, when you see that Jesus willingly orphaned himself so that you can be adopted, when you see that Jesus, by his grace and by his condescension, was willing to face 
alienation from the Father so that you can face reconciliation with the Father. When you see that Jesus on the cross is bearing God's holy wrath so that you get God's undying love, then you see that community is possible. When, when you see that Jesus, who calls himself the temple, was shattered and torn to the ground for three days so that you as a temple could be built up, then, then you get, then you begin to understand. Then this sort of community starts to grow. Listen, um, Jesus died and was abandoned and cursed by his father so that we never will be. And believing that, the gospel, believing that and having that seep deep into your hearts and into your spiritual DNA, that and that alone is what is going to drive forward this kind of community. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe, do you believe that Jesus was willing in his love for you to face abandonment from God, to face alienation from his father, to face complete rejection so that you will never have to face it? And so that we, together, will never have to face it. When you get it, when that starts to hit home, then you see relationships, community, building begin to thrive. When we see that and believe it, the kind of community and relationships that are described in these metaphors become not just sort of a distant possibility, but a true and an abiding reality. Okay, May it be so with us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, let's pray. Our God, we do thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for Jesus who uh, puts himself right square in the center, smack dab in the middle of this text, reminding us that he is the cornerstone upon whom the church derives its life. He is the one that at all times we are leaning upon, and if he were to be taken away, the edifice of our life would crash and crumble to the ground. But that does not happen because you have placed him there. And Father, we thank you that Upon Jesus, we can have real relationships with one another, that we can have a home with you and with each other, that we can be citizens in a new kingdom, a kingdom that's going to reign forever, that we can be in relationships where we really are able to be ourselves and not fear judgment or reprisal or anger or bitterness. And Lord, we thank you that because of what Jesus has done, there's ongoing growth in our own relationships with each other. Those things aren't perfect now. Our relationships are still messy and broken, but we have hope because we know you have redeemed us and renewed us, and you long for us to grow not just together with you, but together with you with one another. And so we pray that that would take place here as we seek to be a church where loving community thrives. May that happen. And God, may it not happen by our own self-effort or willpower or exertion, but may it happen as we rely more and more fully upon the cornerstone. And Father, we long to see these things in our lives, so help us to take the practical steps necessary out of grace because we're dependent on grace in faith to love one another well, to make ourselves vulnerable, to approach each other with authenticity and with reality, Lord. Lord, we pray that these things would be attractive to others and they would come and be a part of this community that you have started as well. Lord, we pray that not just for Christ Church, but for your church around the world. And we long for the day when you will return and this community, this citizenship, this household will be finalized and perfected and there will be no more sin to get in the way of our relationships. Our relationships with you or our relationships with each other. Oh, how wonderful that's going to be. So we hope for it. We pray, Jesus, that you would come quickly. We ask these things in your name. Amen. I stand.